Turn in your Bibles. The precious Word of God, inspired and preserved in our language, commissioned by a king, in response to the dying cries of William Tyndale in the fires of England when he was burned for making the first published and printed translation of the Scriptures into English. Our King James Bibles are 85% William Tyndale's. I have a copy of the English Hexampla, which is six Bible versions of the New Testament compared column by column, starting with John Wycliffe in 1380, ending with our King James Bibles. There's the Geneva, the Cranmer, Bishops, Reims, which is the Catholic. You line them all up, and you see Tyndale, and you see King James, 85%. One man persecuted and chased out of England, spent his, a number of years on the mainland of Europe where he made the first translation, where he made a complete translation of the Bible into English, which was then published and printed and shipped in bags of grain and other ways to England where the people of God could have the Word of God in their own language. We have a video in our library about the life of William Tyndale. I remember the first time I watched it, when it got to some shipmen opening a bag of grain and reaching down into it and pulling out one of those copies and reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Those syllables had never been heard before like that in England. And we still have them today, 500 years later. And let's be thankful for that. When you open your Bibles, you're opening a precious gift of God to us. There's no other book in the world worth reading compared to this book. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'm going to read to you just the first five verses. Establishing the deity the creation, the giving of eternal life, and the world's hatred of Jesus Christ in five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made By him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Amen and amen. The first 18 verses of this book are an introduction and a summary of the book. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are flat out spectacular, sublime, majestic, profound statements by an uneducated fisherman, but under the inspiration of Almighty God. Today, we're only going to be able to cover six words. Maybe I'm starting too slow. Maybe I'm starting too fast. The next phrase, after the first six words, gets us into the Trinity. And the Word was with God. I don't want that today. And the next phrase gets us into the full deity of Jesus Christ And the word was God. I don't want that today. I want those first six words today. I have earlier opened this service with John 14. Because I want this word. And the Father. By the Spirit. To come and manifest Jesus Christ to you and to make their abode with you, and to dwell with you, and to love you. Unbelievable. 
How can I put these things into words? I feel totally incompetent for the event, but I trust God. I feel up like the Southeastern Conference in 1973, lining up on a 400-meter track against the state champion in the 400 meters named Bob Smith from South Lyon High School and supposed to race him. You know, just hand him the medal. Save us the bother, the sweat, the rigamorgus, and the trouble. If I had someone else that I could give you to preach John 1 to you in the way that I think it should be preached, I'd play a video and try to earn my keep some other way. I'm not very often afraid, and I'm sorry for confessing things to you today in, in recent emails, but I'm, and I'm not that afraid. I just want you to know that this is serious business to take words like this and try to explain them. John had two purposes, two main goals in writing. The first goal is in chapter 20. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 30. John 20 and verse 30, and we want to keep his goals in mind. John 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote many of them down, which are not written in this book, this book of John. But these are written. The seven or eight miracles of the Gospel of John. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. His first purpose is for you to know that you have eternal life, For you to know that you're in possession of it by learning about the Lord Jesus Christ more and believing on Him. He has carefully orchestrated by the inspiration of God this 21 chapter epistle to give you from His beginning, from the beginning, His existence as the eternal God all the way to His resurrection and the proofs of it there in the latter chapters of the Gospel. The second reason he wrote was to refute the heretics that had corrupted the doctrine of Christ, what he calls liars and antichrists in his first epistle and in his second epistle. So we've got two goals running side by side to convince us, the believers, of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in his full personal identity as the God-man, as the Word made flesh. Then, to correct, confound, refute, deny, and reject all false doctrines around the identity of Jesus Christ. The manner in which he does it is to present Jesus as God and Savior in the most glorious and personal ways. This uh, gospel is precious. It is written differently than the other three. I do not denigrate the other three. They have their purpose. They have their place. And if I was preaching them, I would make, I would lift them as high as I could. But I don't know how any book of the New Testament can be lifted much higher than the Gospel of John in its presentation of Jesus Christ. Instead of the life of Christ, which we get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get His deity, His person, His doctrine, laid out repeatedly to us. It's different. This book has more of the mystery of Christ rather than the history. When John spoke, and John spoke in a public assembly of the Jewish leadership in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter both spoke, and those Jewish men knew that John and Peter were unlearned and ignorant men. They were uneducated. They did not speak well. And yet, this man, when he takes up a pen, after having been with Jesus, and under the inspiration of God, writes these kind of words. In the beginning was the Word. What a way to open a letter. To open a book. In the beginning 
was the Word. He doesn't open John. And the brethren with him. No. In the beginning was the Word. We rejoice with it. How does this man, other than by inspiration, deal so profoundly with the loftiest of subjects? But we should thank Stephen. Stephen the deacon. When being taken to task by the leadership of the Jews in Acts chapters 6 and 7, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his face shone like an angel, and he confounded the best of the logicians, lawyers, rhetoricians that they could bring against him. He confounded them. And he was a deacon. Praise God for deacons like that. In the beginning, John starts off his gospel about as basic, impressive, and scriptural as possible. He ties it into the words of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Our Bibles begin, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This beginning, as we're going to see with some effort, some repetition, is before creation. It's eternity. The beginning in the Bible, in this kind of a context, is in eternity, God. That's Genesis 1.1. We have God there, and here He's called the Word. You know from the five verses I just read that He is God. From that first verse and its last clause. And the Word was God. By looking at verse 14, we know that this Word became the Son of God by taking on human flesh through the womb and egg of Mary. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That's why He's called the Word. He has declared God to us by His presence in this world, in the flesh given to Him by Mary, a daughter of David. Married legally, later, I mean married legally, to a son of David. They both came from David and Bathsheba. One via Nathan, their son. One via Solomon, their son. He did not get any flesh from Joseph. He got his flesh from Almighty God and Mary. And he's the only begotten Son of God after he took on that flesh. And we'll have much more to say about that. That is not today. Today we want in the beginning. Now when Matthew opens his gospel, he starts with Mary and Joseph and traces Jesus back to Abraham, which was about 2,000 years from the time of Jesus Christ. Mark opens his gospel ignoring Joseph and Mary and begins with John preaching in the wilderness and only traces Jesus back three and a half years from His crucifixion. Luke opens his gospel in the days of Herod and traces Jesus back to Adam. Very specifically, back to Adam. Luke 1 and 2 are about the birth of John the Baptist and about the birth of Jesus Christ in great detail about conversations between Elizabeth and Mary. And the genealogy is given in chapter 3 and it goes back to Adam. Look at John. John the Baptist doesn't come until verse 6. But in verse 1, in the beginning, the same as Genesis 1-1, he traces our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by His divine nature called the Word all the way back into eternity as God. 
so different, so higher, so farther back. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel. We love it. It's a profound statement in the beginning. It's the point of time at which anything begins. It's when the universe began to be. It's a powerful and a profound word. It takes us back to a time before any time. It takes us back to a time before anything. There was nothing. If you want to feel small, as you should, then think about a non-universe. God doesn't need space. How big do you think He is? He fills heaven and earth that He created. Yet He's inside me in the beginning. There was no earth that was form, that was without form, and that was void. There was nothing. Verse 3 of the five verses I've read you said, All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The Creator's before the creatures. The Creator existed when there were no creatures. The Creator existed when there was no heaven and earth. The Creator existed in a non-universe. He joined human flesh and He sits at the right hand of God right now. And by His Spirit, the seven spirits of God, He is walking in this assembly. He's got me in His hand along with every other minister that he's called, and the least of all of them in his right hand. And he's walking among us, and he has a golden candlestick here of his presence. And he is this God, made flesh. John liked this name, because John's the preeminent user of it. He isn't the only one, but he's the preeminent user. Here we have it in John 1 and verse 1. But let's look at 1 John chapter 1 again like we did last Lord's Day. The two openings to the gospel and to his epistle are very similar. I am frankly overwhelmed as well with the first sentence of 1 John. Three verses long. It starts with the word that. What kind of grammar is that? To start with that. But do you like that four-letter word in English in this context? That. He takes his gospel. Let's not even do that. Let's do this. He takes his gospel 66 magnum and points it right at all heretics about the person and identity of Jesus Christ and starts off with pulling the trigger. That. Which was from the beginning. I have handled. A fisherman handled him. Hugged him. Laid in his bosom at supper. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Our ears, our audio nerves picked up. His verbal communication when he was on earth. We have seen with our eyes. We witnessed him in our very presence, which we have looked upon. They've watched him as he engaged in preaching and miracles and healing. And our hands have handled of the word of life. He is the word. In John 1.1, here he is the word of life. In John 1.4, Wait, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It doesn't say, in Him was light, and the light was the life of men. If men would read their Bibles before they get to John 3.16, but when your mind is only big enough to comprehend and remember one verse, You can't expect them to read through 51 verses of John chapter 1. Because you can't get to the fourth verse before you learn in Him was life. We're going to find out what kind in just a second. And that life was the light of men. 
We do not get enlightened in order to have life. We get life in order to be enlightened. That is the message of John in particular. We're still at 1 John. He has called him the word of life at the end of verse 1. Then we have in parentheses, for the life, the eternal existence of God was manifested. That word of life, that eternal existence of God in the word was manifested. It was made visible and plain and obvious and exposed to us. For we have seen it, that is the word of life, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life. Only God is eternal. We have seen and show unto you that God which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. All Christian fellowship must be reduced down to the foundational axioms of the Bible, especially John, in defining the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why so much time was spent last Lord's Day showing you 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 2 John, and John's description of Antichrist. Those who hold a view of Jesus of Nazareth contrary to his doctrine. Look at chapter 4. I did not bring this point to you last Lord's Day. There's two criteria for determining truth in a Christian sense in 1 John. First, the proper identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Second, you had better be apostolic in your doctrine. I begin reading at verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world already. In John's life, many false prophets had gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And the us is not Jonathan Crosby. The us is not the church of Greenville. The us are the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is apostolic doctrine that determines the truthfulness of a spirit, the truthfulness of a prophet, and the particular point of doctrine listed in these six verses is Jesus Christ did come in the flesh. He had a real material physical body. Back to John. Well, no, we want to go to Revelation. We want to actually go to 1 John chapter 5. I'm showing you the four occurrences of John's use of the word. 1 John chapter 5, and the most contested verse in the Bible. If you are looking at a Bible version in another language, and you're wondering how close it is to the King James Bible, go to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7, always, always. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There are three persons in a singular God. So that they can speak to each other in plural pronouns as they do in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our own image. One, plural. Plural, one, the Trinity for another time. 
what I want you to see right now is that the Word is there in that verse as being one God. Then we can go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And when I sent you the preparatory email yesterday, I was beside myself with the glory of these wonderful verses and the word picture that God wants you to have of His Son. This, this picture is what you mean when you close your prayers by saying, in Jesus' name. Hell trembles. Devils flee. Because as they confessed in Acts 19, Jesus we know. As they confessed in Matthew 8 and other places, they worshipped the Lord Jesus. This is the picture. And it's doubled to us in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 1. It's here in chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. Do you want to see heaven? Let me read a few verses to you. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Oh, let's sing crown him with many crowns right now. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. But he's on a horse. In the beginning was the Word. We go back before all creation, we go back before all time, and we find God the Word. John used it those different ways. Acts chapter 15 and verse 18 is the council of Jerusalem, where they were deliberating, that is the apostles and the elders of the church at Jerusalem, about what ought to be required of Gentile converts out of Moses' law. Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch, a couple 300 miles north of Jerusalem, Antioch of Syria, where Paul's home church, and had taught there that you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. So a council was held in Jerusalem to determine what ought to be required of Gentile converts. And so the, Peter tells about the conversion of the household of Cornelius. Paul talks about the Lord's dealings with him among the Gentiles. James then brings it to a conclusion by giving an inspired answer. The context tells us the Holy Ghost hath determined. James is just the speaker for the Holy Ghost. This is James the Lord's brother. James, the son of Zebedee, is dead. James the lesser doesn't have a position like this. We know this by looking at other places in Scripture, like Galatians chapter 1, that tell us that the lead apostle in Jerusalem was James the Lord's brother. But he said, this is the fulfillment of of Amos chapter 9 and verse 11, that God has determined to build up his kingdom with Gentiles. And he quotes that passage of Scripture, and he says, known unto God are all his works, from the beginning of the world. I haven't turned you to it. I hope you know what it says there. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. So this beginning, before Genesis 1-1, because it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, but there was no heaven, there was no earth, there was no light, there was no form, there wasn't anything. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Before he created the heaven and the earth, it was a non-universe. There wasn't a universe. God doesn't need a universe. Don't you get sick when you have to drive a long distance to somebody? 
He doesn't care about distance and geography and all those things that we fuss about. He's infinite. He can abide within himself. And do you know what he says in Isaiah 57 and verse 15? He inhabits eternity. I inhabit eternity. Now to us, eternity is some measure of the absence of time. It's not a measure of time. It's a measure, it's a, it's a word of no time. But it isn't a geographical place. It's not a place. It's not a location. It's eternity. I inhabit eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. In the beginning. In the beginning. What does the Bible tell us that God did in the beginning, in eternity, before the world began, before the foundation of the world was laid? Does the Bible tell us anything? Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. God promised eternal life before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 He purposed to save us by His grace and purpose in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1 Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. These are events that the Word of God was active in before Genesis 1.1. I have taught all these things to you before. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? If He were to step into this room right now and you could visibly lay His eyes upon Him, and I want to tell you that in the promise and the confidence and faith and hope of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and I shall behold Him with mine eyes and not another. And though after my skin worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. See God? All the glory of God will be shining in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all you'll ever be able to handle, even glorified. Because sons can never know the full luster and glory of their father, not even Jesus Christ. In his human nature. Never forget that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a special little fact that in the end of all things, when everything has been formally and officially put down, Jesus will be subject to God, that God may be all in all. Never forget the text. It will save you from eternal sonship people that get confused. They are confused because their doctrine is confusing. We have just spent precious time through the month of January in Ephesians chapter 1. But that whole chapter and its glorious union with Jesus Christ, which we just sang, "'Twas with an everlasting love." Christ did His own elect embrace. We were chosen in Christ Jesus. We were chosen in the Word of God by covenant in the beginning. When it says in the beginning, we should remember everything else that took place back there. There was no Piedmont of the Carolinas. There was no Western Hemisphere. There wasn't a sphere. There wasn't a solar system. There wasn't a universe. 1 Peter 1.20 tells us that God foreordained Jesus to die before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8 tells us he wrote our names in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34 tells us that God built a heavenly kingdom and prepared it for his elect from the foundation of the world. God purposed that Gentiles would be saved, Acts 15, from the beginning of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, God has loved us and chosen us to salvation through sanctification and belief of the sanctification of the Spirit. And belief of the truth from the beginning. Just like this verse uses it. We have heard secrets from before the world began. Matthew chapter 13, Ephesians chapter 3. There have been secrets that have been kept secret from before the world began. And they are revealed to us in the gospel. For me to say to you 
that God promised eternal life and chose you by name and wrote your name in the book of life. For God the Word to join human flesh and by covenant, He would die through that life given to Him by Mary a virgin to save you from the everlasting condemnation that you deserve. That is a secret that we would not know and was kept hid from the foundation of the world. Because it occurred before Genesis 1-1. Our revelation starts at Genesis 1-1. And so what we are able to read in the Bible about things that occurred in eternity is precious information. There's other ways and other expressions that the Bible uses in the New Testament of the word beginning. In uh, Colossians chapter 1, it just says of Jesus, who is the beginning? Who is the beginning? What does that mean? He starts everything. Right. How about Revelation 3.14? He's the beginning of the creation of God. Does that mean he's the first creature? No, it means he did all the creating and got it started. In consistent with everything else. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is before and after all. But i got to correct one thing. We'll have time for one correction here. Proverbs chapter 8. Oh, I get tired of this one. Amen. Proverbs chapter 8. We're working with the words, and we're about to end with the words in the beginning. In a non-universe was the Word. He was with God, and He was God. And they made a covenant that the Word would come and join Himself to human flesh, lay down His life on earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to save all of the elect that were assigned to Him, which He fulfilled perfectly and sits at God's right hand enjoying pleasures forevermore for His obedience to the death of the cross. God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. This is the man, Christ Jesus, our mediator and redeemer. His name that is above every name is not the Word of God. His name is Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess, but not God. He'll be subject to God. As I already told you, don't forget. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. These two verses say that this person, identified here by the personal pronoun, me, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old, but another personal pronoun, I, was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. This personal pronoun... Those who don't read their Bibles carefully and to whom God has left a veil over their eyes thinks that this is a description of a Christophany. A description of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not in Proverbs chapter 8. Except very indirectly that in Jesus Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So whatever wisdom is in Proverbs 8, Jesus, by being the Word of God, had it always. But that is not taught here at all. What is taught here is simply a personification of wisdom as a lady. The me and the I are feminine. Look at verse 1. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth... Her voice, if your Jesus is a little girl, and I know the pictures hanging in your church look like it, if your Jesus is a little girl, then you ought to latch on to Proverbs chapter 8. But if your Jesus is the Word, you should realize that the 36 verses of this chapter are a personification of wisdom as Lady Wisdom. Verse 2, she standeth in the top of high places by the way in the places of the paths. 3, she 
crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in, at the doors, and so forth and so on. And all the way through, it is Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. Jesus Christ is not here. It's not a prophecy of Him. It's not a description of Jesus playing ball in the front yard and God owning Him, having Him, delighting in Him. It says all these expressions and men get confused. And the Bible, we are told to rightly divide the Word of Truth. And so the division is, Jesus and the Word are not in Proverbs chapter 8 other than indirectly. It is teaching a lesson about wisdom And Solomon beautified that lesson by making it a personification into Lady Wisdom. In the beginning. What does in the beginning mean to you? When there was a non-universe. One that inhabited eternity. Who was from everlasting to everlasting. Knew you. Agreed to a covenant to die for you. And loved you with an everlasting love. Rhonda, we just sang "Twas with an everlasting love. No one has loved any of you like the Lord Jesus Christ from eternity in the person of the Word. Everything is winding down. The universe is corrupting, imploding in upon itself. Through the laws of entropy and thermodynamics, destructive, cursed. But there is one who needs no universe for perfect, complete, eternal existence. And it's the Word in the beginning. Your Savior will not let anything happen to you, though there were to be an inferno of a whirlwind that would collapse the universe upon itself and it would disappear. He still inhabits eternity and he has you inscribed in the palm of his hand and he has you in the book of life and he will not lose a single one of you. You have never been loved by anyone even close. In fact, it's just a joke to think about the love of anyone in comparison to his love, his love for us before anything existed. You know, we think that mountains, and even in the Bible, mountains are set forth as something that have never moved, and so they're permanent. But they're only 6,000 years old. Long before that, in eternity... He loved you and was committed to die for you. When you're overwhelmed, he's underwhelmed. He doesn't really know why you're overwhelmed. Master, we perish. Oh, ye of little faith, can't you let me sleep down here in the hold of this ship that's being tossed to and fro in this storm? Master, we perish. They were overwhelmed. He was underwhelmed. O ye of little faith. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. Don't be overwhelmed, brethren. I'm I'm as tempted to be overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with John. I'm as tempted to be overwhelmed as you are overwhelmed. But he existed, knew you, loved you, committed to die for you before there was a universe. Now that's a pretty big obstacle to create life, to create a universe, to create a planet, its solar system. That was just a little event in the history of the world. Do you know what ground we cover in the first five verses of this book? Because verse 6 is going to say there was a man sent from God. We know the exact time when he was sent because of what we're told in Luke chapter 3 by the listing of a number of officials of the Roman government. But do you know what we get in five verses? The history of the universe. 
And do you know what the history of the universe is all about? The history of Jesus Christ. Your brother, your joint heir, your savior, your Lord, your friend. He, he, the God that inhabited eternity will come and make his abode with you and dwell with you if you will love him and keep his commandments. He will manifest himself to you and the world will never see it. In your bed when it is dark and you are not reading nor texting nor receiving texts or anything, he will manifest himself to you. When you're driving and you're thinking upon him and you're looking at those clouds knowing that he is coming soon, riding upon the clouds as Psalm 18 describes, he is yours from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The self-existent God, Jehovah, I am that I am. The word was God. It says in this first verse. So the word was Jehovah. He's immediately identified as God in the first verse. He's immediately identified as Him in verse 3. All things were made by Him. We have this singular male pronoun used for the word. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so forth. We have this personal nature of the word of God. It's a singular. You go to Genesis 1, you go to other places, you've got plurality. Here it's the Word. We want to be thankful for it. We want to be thankful for Him. John called Him the Word in several places. Now, brethren, I'm going to take, let me take a little short diversion here, a rabbit trail. I think it's relatively worthless, but you are going to run into some things about it from time to time. The Greek word behind the word, word, is logos, or logos. Theologians that want to keep the mystery of their profession pronounce it logos. Those who would look at English spelling and pronounce it like it should be, logos. Doesn't matter. It is a term used by the Greeks and had been used for hundreds of years before John 1. The number of pages that have been written about the Logos makes me sick. The word Logos in Greek means, I say, that which is said, word, surprise, surprise, (laughs) sentence, speech, story, Discourse, account, debate, utterance, a ground, a plea, an opinion, an expectation, to reason, that which is thought, reason, logic, consideration, computation, reckoning, an account, explanation, or narrative. It is the communication and declaration of truth. I get that from the word word. I don't need logos or logos. But you... Commentators are going to lead you astray. If you get into the sonship of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to read about this stuff. But hopefully you won't. Hopefully you'll already know about the sonship of Jesus Christ. The Greek Stoic philosophers identified the Logos with the divine animating principle pervading the universe. The Gnostic notion was that the Logos, or the Word, was one of the eons that had been created, and this one had been united to the man Jesus. Think with me. A Gnostic notion of the Logos was that it was one of the eons, eons emanating from God, meaning sort of like eternally generated or eternally begotten, from God and joined himself to Jesus. So that Jesus is an emanating eon of the Gnostics. Derived from this Greek word is our ology. 
biology, zoology, psychology, any ology comes from that Greek word logos, meaning knowledge or science, biology, life science or life knowledge. Also from that word comes our word logic. Now let's remember that the Greeks sought after wisdom according to the word of God and the testimony of the scriptures, and they never found any of it. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And all you have to do is look at that stinking little nation. You know it's true. I mean, it's incredible how you can be given the whole world under Alexander the Great and only have it for about three years. And then turn into the most pitiful, corrupt, poor, dysfunctional, helpless little bunch of socialists that have exist in Europe right now. You know, if it wasn't for the rest of Europe, like the Germans, and listen, when it comes to spiritual things, they're equals, Germans and Greeks. But when it comes to natural things, they're not equals. Germans work and Germans save. Greeks don't know anything about either. And so if it wasn't for Germany and the other working nations of Europe bailing out the stinking Greeks, they'd have starved to death and all killed each other by now. Because, you know, as soon as it gets a little tight and the government says, we're going to have to pull the tit right now, for just a few minutes on you students so that you're no longer getting all of your classes paid for, all of your books paid for, and a stipend to live on, we're going to have to pull it. You know, they go to the streets and want to burn the place down. I say all of that because I love the Word of God that tells me they sought after wisdom. You know what the greatest opportunity for wisdom the Greeks ever had? A little base man stood on Mars Hill and preached Jesus to them. And Damaris and Dionysius, the Areopagite, do you think he might have been pretty close to Mars Hill Mm -hmm. since it was also called the Areopag? I'm just telling you what I think of Greek (laughs) and Greece. I hate Greek. I think I'm probably mentally competent enough that if I had wanted to learn Greek instead of quantitative analysis and what-if formulations for a major bank holding company, I could have learned Greek. Mm -hmm. But what a waste of my time. Oh, thank you, Lord. You know, as soon as a man starts preaching in Greek and you ask the people in the pew... What did you learn today? Do you know what he says? It's all Greek to me. Why would we refer to the Greek? If I wanted to show you how to run your BMW, why would I get a BMW manual for your model in German? Neither of us know it, and you've never heard anyone that knows it. It's all secondhand junk from reading classical Greek by classical authors when the Corne Greek of the New Testament is a different form of Greek. There's no magic or mystery using Greek words except to mystify hearers. Some will mock the Roman Catholic use of Latin for 1,200 years and then they will use Greek for supposedly deeper meanings. That is sick, that is hypocritical, that is wrong. We have a word here in these first six words that is fully sufficient if we will understand it in its context. And in its context it says that this only begotten Son of God, the Word made flesh, declared God to us. Do you need more of an explanation for what the word word means? In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Word communicated the essence that communicated the person and the love and the grace of God, full of grace and truth. Amen. Uh, just these first 18 verses are going to lay out so much truth, and we need to embrace it all and love our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Word. He's not the Logos. He's not the Logos. If we want to start doing that, we should change every word in the Bible. I 
have never heard or read a single verse where light is shed by the Greek, and I have read quite a bit of men who think it does. Never. I do know this. Once you choose Greek, you must again choose what version you're going to use because there's just about as many versions in Greek as there are in English. So how do you know that this Greek word that you're putting so much trust in is even the right Greek word? You don't know. And of course, those people that love Greek 99% of the time despise the Textus Receptus behind our King James Bibles because they've proven that they are the fools of the earth in theological circles by rejecting God's stamp of approval upon our Bible and upon its underlying text. You will never know as much as the translators anyway, no matter how much you study Greek. Every pastor has so many other duties that he could benefit his people by instead of learning two relatively dead languages. I do know this, the internal contradictions like Mark 1-2, which I shared with you just a few days ago, prove their folly. I do know this, professional or scholastic esteem by the world requires you to like Greek, and that tells me enough right there. If it's highly esteemed among men, it's something I don't like. I do not believe that John used the word logos, if he used the word logos, in the first six words of John 1, 1 to accommodate Greek philosophers. Do, I, I, I do not have time to take you back and read First John chapter 4, those first six verses where he said, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The world hears themselves talk. The world reads their own literature. But the man that hears us and the man that reads our literature is of God. Because we fishermen have something that they don't have. We have inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and we convey truth. He didn't accommodate the devil's side. There's there's no apostle that is stronger than John against false doctrine about Jesus Christ. He would not have allowed any connection to a Gnostic concept of an emanating God, nor to a Stoic concept of some power or force pervading the universe. The word, word. All things were made by him. Verse 3. Let's just think of the word word in context. You know what the word word means? It's an expression. It's expressing God. He declares God, verse 18. But he created all things. What does the creation say to us? From Psalm 19, verse 1. Anybody help me? The heavens declare the glory of God. He's the declarer of God. He's the express image of God. Ephesians, I mean, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was made flesh, and men were able to see God. God manifest in the flesh through Jesus Christ. Taking on the, 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 the name Word for us to understand His role in redemption. Father, Try to find God the Father in the Old Testament. Those terms, terms only, describe the persons of the Godhead in their relationship to Jesus Christ and to us. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father by predestinated adoption. And the Word declares God, shows God to us. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. God the Word and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed God to us. He's the Word of God. That's His name for our simple understanding. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. More on the Trinity coming. The Word of God incarnate is Jesus Christ. 
is credited in the Bible with the value of logos. If logos is communication, if it's logic, if it's a message, if it's discourse, if it's a reasoned discourse, if it's wisdom, what does our Lord Jesus Christ have? I'll quote it again, Colossians 2, 3, In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. The Word of God. Amen. Now in His human nature, what does it tell us in Luke two fifty two? Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. But in His combined being, God has made Him for us to be wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Was John the only writer that used Word of God for the second person, the Trinity? No. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is quick and powerful. A text that we love to remember and I want you to remember. But it's a small W there. I love the small W's when it could be capitalized because then it lets men understand an error if they don't want to read the context. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have such a high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. How could you be plainer? <laughs> Hebrews 4.12 is quoted so many times, for the word of God is quick and powerful. It's usually quoted like this, for the word of God is quick and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 doesn't have anything to do with this book. This book is not alive. This book has ink marks on paper. The traits describing the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 do not apply to the Bible. The word quick means to be alive. The Lord Jesus Christ is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart, not the Bible. You know, there's other examples that I could show you of Luke, who said the apostles were eyewitnesses of the Word. Eyewitnesses of the Word. Peter, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Amen. Two verses later, the written word of God endureth forever. That's not living and abiding. That's enduring and so forth. Your Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he that loveth me and keepeth my commandments, I will come and manifest myself to him. And my Father will come. And we, he will love you. And I will love you. And we will make our abode with you. Amen. This, Lord Jesus Christ, so far from the words, in the beginning was the word. You have been baptized in his name. We have been so corrupted by the Catholic caricature of Jesus Christ in picture form that we lose sight of the Word of God that was in the beginning before Genesis 1-1. We lose sight of the Word of God on that white horse with a vesture dipped in blood that Jesus wanted us to have. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. You've been baptized in his name. You committed that you would live for him for the rest of your life who was in the beginning and knew you and loved you and committed to die for you and he will be in the end when this earth, this heavens, are burned up and melted with fervent heat. And he will be there between those two points and extremes. He is with you every day. When I am overwhelmed, 
When my spirit is overwhelmed within me, David said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Are you willing to live for this, Lord Jesus Christ? There is nothing to be ashamed of this, Lord Jesus Christ. And if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, proven by obedience to his commandments from this apostolic word, you're anathema, maranatha. At his coming. Humble yourself. Embrace him. Love him. Learn about him. Consider. Remember. Review. And obey him. Amen. Amen.